Uh, I began this morning by reading Mead's famous comment about uh, what the Hippocratic tradition eventually did, but there are perhaps some nuances we should put in. Uh, uh, my interest in this, of course, stemmed from uh, becoming pro-choice myself for 20 years uh, and recognizing now at this late stage how important the Christian community's lack of response to abortion has been. Uh, and the Hippocratic Oath was clearly very much uh, opposed to abortion. But certain caveats need to be made. It, it's almost certain that the Hippocratic Oath that was used in the Western world for a long while was not, in fact, written in Kos, where Hippocrates was, and almost certainly wasn't written by Hippocrates. Uh, the dates vary from, suggested from uh, as early as the 4th century BC up to the 1st century AD. So you see there's a lot of debate among scholars as to when it uh, was actually written. The first uh, external comment on it is in fact from the 1st century AD. Uh, another reason for saying that probably Hippocrates didn't write it is that there are bits of it that are not coherent with the other text from the so-called Hippocratic corpus. Uh, for instance, there are discussions on the technique of abortion, and the Hippocratic Oath explicitly forbids it. Uh, that obviously doesn't fit together. Uh, the real sensitivity to the sanctity of life issue clearly didn't take off in any big way anyway until the Christian era. Uh, it was certainly a minority position for a long while. Uh, in the uh, part of the Hippocratic corpus called the art, medicine is defined as having three roles, which we would not recognize all three. Uh, the first two, yes, but the third, no. Number one was the function of medicine is to do away with suffering. Uh, number two was to lessen the violence of disease, and hopefully we're Still interested in both of those. But the third one was to refuse to treat anyone overmastered by their disease. And that was taken so far as to say you shouldn't take on patients for whom you didn't expect to achieve a cure. Uh, that obviously is not modern medicine, and we might come to discuss that uh, after the break. Um, Amundsen, in, if you're interested, this book... Uh, Medicine, Society, and Faith in the Ancient and Medieval Worlds. Uh, he's a good scholar from uh, Washington State. Uh, also cooperated in another book, which I have somewhere. Uh, this one, IVP, A Different Death, by Larson and Amundsen. Uh, good source material. And the third one I'll be referring to will be this one, Ancient Medicine, uh, selected papers of Ludwig Edelstein. Uh, they're all worth looking at. But uh, Amundsen points out that medicine has gone through a sequence, really. Uh, ancient medicine was initially subsumed under religion. So you went to the temple, and there was a prescribed sequence of prayers, dieting, uh, fasting, uh, uh, and uh, healing occurred in that process. Uh, then, in the next stage, medicine became somewhat separated from religion. So it was partially under the control of religion. These discussions went on for a long while, right into the Middle Ages, as uh, you'll see in Lindbergh, for instance. Uh, then after that, of course, in, in the, uh, the post-Enlightenment period, it, it became separated from medicine. Now, of course, we're going sort of full cycle the other way around, and religion is being put under medicine. So originally religion was over medicine, and then you go through these stages and you end up with uh, people who look upon uh, religion as being under medicine or as part of it. That's the classic uh, lash comment. Uh, uh, let me just read it to you uh, about the modern world. Which it's so often people who appear not to be believers who, who understand... Uh, what is happening and express it uh, better than we often do. Here's Lash talking about religion in the modern sense. He says, Plagued by anxiety, depression, vague discontents, a sense of inner emptiness. Does that sound like some of your patients? 
The psychological man of the 20th century seeks neither individual self-aggrandizement nor spiritual transcendence, but peace of mind under conditions that increasingly militate against it. It sounds like a hospital. Therapists, not priests or popular preachers of self-help or models of success like captains of industry, become his principal allies in the struggle for composure. He turns to them in the hope of achieving the modern equivalent of salvation, mental health. Therapy has established itself as a successor both to rugged individualism and to religion. But this does not mean that the triumph of the therapeutic has become a new religion in its own right. Therapy actually constitutes an anti-religion, not to be sure because it always adheres to rational explanation or scientific methods of healing as its practitioners would have us believe, but because modern society has no future and therefore gives no thought to anything beyond immediate needs. Even when therapists speak of need for meaning and love, they define love and meaning simply as the fulfillment of the patient's emotional requirements. It hardly occurs to them to encourage the subject to subordinate his needs and interests to those of others, to someone or some cause or tradition outside himself. Love as self-sacrifice or self-abasement, meaning as submission to higher loyalty, these sublimations strike the therapeutic sensibility as intolerably oppressive, offensive to common sense and injurious to personal health and well-being. To liberate humanity from such outmoded ideas of, the lo of love and duty has become the mission of the post-Freudian therapies, and particularly of their converts and popularizers, for whom mental health means the overthrow of inhibitions and the immediate gratification of every impulse. That's from uh, The Culture of Narcissism. I think he's right. The very first uh, tutorial I had in psychiatry as a medical student, as a very bright Jewish psychiatry, and it was a one-on-one -on -one tutorial, and he said, as an opening gambit, we will debate the proposition that all feelings of sin and guilt are evidence of depression. Uh, that's in your face, isn't it? Uh, that's medicine taking over the whole thing, uh, which is what uh, Amundsen is talking about. Uh, the, the, in the ancient... Ancient culture, nevertheless, played an important role in the development of medicine, and I'm going to go a little bit beyond our era for this purpose. Uh, the problem was that the, the line where heresy enters medicine was difficult because of the, the range of Christian options, and that is even greater today than it was then. But there were things that people agreed on, and here are, um, I think in the end, what was it? Yeah, six things that, that almost everyone agreed on in the early Christian era, late uh, Jewish early Christian era. First of all, that God's creation is good. Uh, Paul obviously had to deal with, with people who didn't think that later on. Uh, secondly, that despite the fall, nature is provided for man's sustenance. Thirdly, that medicine is not intrinsically and essentially opposed to religion and especially to Christianity. But ultimate, number four, ultimate reliance is to be on God, not medicine. Number five, the modern all, uh, all healing comes from God is not found in early Christian writings, particularly in the patristic literature. They actually thought that demons could heal and did on occasion do so. And uh, certainly animists would claim that as well. Uh, and number six, uh, they believe that medicine could be used for sinful purposes. We hardly need that to be emphasized for us now, do we? Catholic thought over the centuries worked on that, those six basic points in terms of working out the role of the doctor. I mean, for a long while, the doctor and the priest could not be combined in Catholicism. I don't know whether that's allowed now. I think it is. Healing is, was not as important in the early church as... Uh, many of us seem to think. Uh, that, that's really only been uh, dealt with in recent years. Uh, the more traditional uh, view up until, now what date was this? This is in the middle of the last century or even later than that. Uh, this is uh, uh, Vivian Nutton writing, 1985. Uh, he strongly argued that on the whole Christianity was favorable to medicine or at any, any rate not hostile. And he goes on, Harnack long ago showed Christianity is a healing religion par excellence. 
The New Testament emphasizes the power of Christ and his apostles to cure diseases, and this was one of the features that secured for Christianity the primacy among competing religions. Similarly, Ramsey McMullen has recently pointed to the crucial significance of healing miracles in securing the allegiance of intellectual doubters and of the ordinary people to Christianity. Yet this Christian healing was not that of the doctors. It succeeded where they had failed, often over many years and at great expense, and it was accessible to all. It was simple. It was a medicine of prayer and fasting or anointing and laying on of hands. The power to heal was given to Christian healers, elders, and they were to be consulted first in all cases of illness. But the, Amundsen goes on to say that that, in fact, is not true. Uh, that although the New Testament emphasizes the miracles of Jesus and to a lesser extent those of the apostles as, as substantiating proofs of the truth of Christianity, the role of healing miracles within the Christian community and as part of the evangelical enterprise during the second and third centuries was so minor as to be nearly negligible. Uh, of course, now we're very much back into healing. Uh, but it wasn't dominant, uh, according to... Uh, the most recent scholarship, and that seems to me to make more sense. As we started this morning with Jesus looking at the sick and saying, no, I'm going to teach. That was primary. Um, if you think about it, if Christianity had been in direct competition with the healing cults, uh, there would have been, all oh, hell would break loose. There would have been political tensions of the first order, uh, and those did not occur. Uh, you see, see how much trouble uh, Paul got into over Diana of the Ephesians, for instance. So there would have been a lot more of that if Christianity had been pushing the healing aspect as a primary function. Uh, Basil of Caesarea, who approved of medicine, first required that a Christian should first seek to find out why God had sent or permitted disease, uh, but then could use medicine as he wished. Uh, Edelstein uh, says that the prime motivation talking about the prime motivation of medicine, he writes, the medical art has to consider three factors, the disease, the patient, and the physician. The physician is servant of his art, and the patient must cooperate with the doctor in combating disease. See, the ethic was much more of the doctor's commitment to the standards of his art, as uh, Edelstein puts it, than to the patient. Uh, the Christian... Uh, approach didn't develop until much later. Uh, and what I want to do now is to talk about the ways in which we can use the Hippocratic Oath and what it contains, recognizing that it didn't reach fruition until the Christian era, although it was, it can be traced back probably before that, but <coughs> certainly not to Hippocrates. But nevertheless, it is a, a very useful uh, starting point for us in talking about the practice and nature of medicine. And I gave you the list of the four things that I thought were essential this morning, and I just want to talk about why they are. First of all, transcendence. Uh, why is it essential? Uh, I got into a lot of trouble a few weeks ago in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, the CEO of the hospital was a very bright atheist who it turned out was a Jew, as he put it, who walked, walked away from his Judaism after his bar mitzvah. Um, he only said that when I said, you've got to be Jewish, you think like a Jew. And he said, well, I grew up as Jewish, but I'm not Jewish anymore. But he came steaming up to me after the lecture and said, how dare you say that I, as an atheist, will be less ethical than Christians and believing Jews? And I said, you didn't listen carefully. I didn't say that. What I said is you'll be less rationally ethical than a believing Christian or Jew or indeed Muslim. That's the point of transcendence. It's the old question. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, you can either talk about that for a long while or as a wonderful illustration. How many of you have seen the film A Man for All Seasons? Oh, only one or two. Well, the rest of you should go watch it sometime <coughs> with your children. Oh, there's some more over here. Good. Uh, it's the story of Thomas More and Henry VIII. And Henry had not got the son he wanted from Catherine of Aragon, so he wanted to divorce her and marry Anne Boleyn. And, uh, of course, the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't allow him to do that. So Henry decided to separate the English Church from the Catholic Church. And you don't 
play with people's religion without getting a huge response. And so he was not popular. Now, his chancellor was Thomas More. And Thomas More was known to be an utterly incorruptible man. He was a justice who dispensed justice. Now, when leaders are trying to do things against the general will of the people, they always want to co-opt anybody whose reputation is unsullied. <coughs> so Henry wanted Thomas back as his chancellor. So he sends Nort, the Duke of Norfolk to persuade him, and he goes through the usual process, you know, we need you, this, you, you know the thing, how your arm gets twisted to work on a committee you don't want to work on, etc. Well, Thomas was not being moved, and in the end, Norfolk says, Thomas, come with us, be a king's man again, come for fellowship's sake. You know, he plays his trump card of friendship. And Thomas looks at him and says, Norfolk, if I come with you now to the king's side for fellowship's sake, will you come with me later to hell for fellowship's sake? That's why transcendence matters. Now again, using the basic rule that the best person to make your, your case for you is a Darwinian or a, an atheist. Here's Darwin writing on the same issue. He says, A man who has no assured or ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or a future existence with retribution or reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him to be the best ones. You take the point. Uh, Lewis understood it too in The Abolition of Man. Why wouldn't a good Darwinian use the opportunities that medicine brings along? Uh, imagine, for instance, that Tim there in the back row has got cancer. And imagine that I have the cure in my pocket for his cancer. Should I give it to him? The immediate human response is yes, isn't it? But what if uh, Tim is a wealthy man, and what if his well is, will is written out in my favor, and he doesn't know I've got the cure, and I'm a good Darwinian. What am I going to do now? I think the answer is the exact opposite, isn't it? Why, if it's just a battle for genes, he's clearly a younger man, more competitive with my offspring, get him out of the way. If you're a Darwinian, there could be no reason for not taking the immediate winnings of his fortune and the later winnings of marketing my cure. And Darwin understood that. That's why Hippocrates wanted transcendence. Uh, because if you fear for your soul, what will you in fact give in exchange for it? Now, those 20% of the class that the students recognize shouldn't be in medicine, what would they give in exchange for soul they don't believe they've got? Anything would be a benefit, wouldn't it? Something for nothing. And you can imagine one of those guys sidling up to you in a bar one night, a few years hence, when we've legalized physician-assisted suicide, and saying something like, you're looking after Uncle Henry, aren't you? Do you know, if Uncle Henry doesn't survive this illness, you might get a Mercedes. I mean, some of them would be tempted for a Ford Taurus, wouldn't they? Uh, I mean, if you don't have a soul, anything is a benefit. Uh, this is the issue about transcendence. That's why the Hippocratic Oath begins with the invocation of Apollo, Hygieia, Panacea, and Asclepius, and all the gods and goddesses. Those are the only gods that were around, so to speak, at the time. Uh, and, but the, the point was, if you don't fear retribution, judgment after death, there are lots of things that you could rationally do. The rational ethics of an atheist are bound to be utilitarian with him, the person who decides what the utility is. Uh, whereas for a Christian, hopefully you all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That should get you out of bed at night to comfort the patient and not to kill them. If it doesn't, it's back to your knees uh, fervently uh, to see these things more clearly. So that's why transcendence mattered to Hippocrates. He understood that. If the doctor doesn't fear for his soul, he is rationally more corruptible than if he does. Now, the, the second point was that, that medicine is essentially a moral activity. Uh, I would argue that what you do when you see a patient is not primarily technical. 
what, what you do is you help patients to decide what they ought to do. Now, whenever you, you hear the ought or should or must, what are you practicing? Science, philosophy or theology? I would argue, and not everybody agrees, uh, that science does not tell you what you ought to do. That that comes from somewhere else. Science does not say to save life is good. It might be argued that to save some life would be good, but the Christian position is that to save life is good. That's our function. Uh, in other words, we import in the, the moral structure of Judeo-Christian thought to, to tell us what to do. Uh, there's no treatment which is mandatory, is there? We always have to decide whether we wish to take treatment or not, although it, it's sometimes hard to do. Someone was telling me just earlier of, uh, of someone who'd been on dialysis for many years and decided they'd had enough and were not going to have any more. The experience for those there of saying goodbye, knowing that when they didn't take dialysis they'd be dead fairly shortly, is similar to euthanasia, but it wasn't euthanasia. Uh, because uh, anybody who's in that situation is in fact saying to God, if God wants me to live, he can do that. But I don't want to be attached to this machine. If God wants me to live, he, he can cause me to live without the machine, which he can. Uh, as long as they're clear before God that they have no duties to others that would hold them, then that's not euthanasia. That's withdrawal of burdensome treatment. And we are not required to take burdensome treatment unless there is an obvious moral duty to others. Um, these are going to be more and more difficult situations, aren't they? Very problematical, and I don't suppose any of us will be able to get them all right en route. We're going to make a lot of mistakes in the next few years. Now, even over issues like abortion, I can see cloudy situations that could arise. I mean, with so many spontaneous abortions occurring for every live birth, there has to be a mechanism, doesn't there? Now, as far as I know, nobody has discovered what the mechanism is yet, but it wouldn't seem unreasonable to propose that it involves something like a local hormone system of some sort, that a normal baby produces some product which fits onto a receptor, say, on the placenta, and as long as that receptor is occupied, nothing happens. But if the baby doesn't develop properly and ceases to produce the receptor blocker, then it becomes unblocked and abortin is released and a, s a spontaneous abortion occurs. Now, say that, that, say that just for theoretical reasons that that is in fact the mechanism. If it is, we will shortly discover a subgroup of women who don't produce abortin, right? Just like for every other hormone, there are hyposecretors or non-secretors. Now, what are you going to do if you find a woman who doesn't secrete abortin and yet the marker for its secretion shows that it should be secreted? What are you going to do? I think, by extension from diabetes and all other endocrine models, you're going to give it, aren't you? Now, what will you, what's the issue then? Are you causing an abortion or are you correcting a metabolic defect which you could in some deep sense be, say, is the product of the fall. Well, this is a very grey area, isn't it? So we need to be careful recognising that we, we may not understand all these things and we may have adjustments to make. Fundamental issue is another one and we'll come to that in a moment. But we, we ha we're going to have to be very careful to, to, to be willing to say, I don't know what the ramifications of this particular discovery or that particular discovery is. And I'm going to need time and I'm going to need to hear what other people have to say to think this through. Um, what are the ramifications? Uh, these are going to be very cloudy issues, uh, especially as we get on to more and more gene manipulation and things like that. Uh, uh, the next few years are going to be difficult. But Hippocrates, uh, or using his name as a surrogate for whoever it was that, that came up with the oath, clearly understood that he wanted the kinds of physicians who understood that this was the nature of medicine to, to, to help the patient understand what they ought to do and this was therefore a moral activity. Now this is useful to us. 
Because if medicine is a moral activity, if one can sustain that argument and you work in a context which talks about practicing patient-centered medicine, what is that going to involve? What discussion can you now force upon the reluctant proponents of multiculturalism? Well, uh, just... uh, You've all got pens in your, in your hands. Very swiftly, sort of, not too much thought. You can almost be brainstem reflex. Think uh, if the next hundred patients you see are a random cross-section of Americans. I'll give you the category, and you can write down the percentage, okay? What percentage will be Catholic? Just write the figure down, straight off your head. They won't add up to 100. It'll be interesting to see how close you get to 100. There'll be no prize, but it'd be nice to know who gets closest. So what percentage Catholic? What percentage Protestant? What percentage Jewish? Muslim? Hindu? Buddhist? That's the world's great religions. In Buddhist, we'll include the Sinic religions. And then we've got atheist and agnostic and a leftover category of nothings. Don't know what they believe. So all I've given you really is a list of the world's great religions, atheism, agnosticism, and nothing. Anybody actually had up to 100%? Are you quick enough to do the mental arithmetic and get it right? 102. 102, not bad, not bad. Within 2%, that's very impressive. Yeah. 97, uh, 3, that's uh, pretty good. Yeah, Not bad at... Well, you're of an age to still do mental arithmetic, or at least you're still not. Now, let's see what you actually wrote down. What percentage, eventually, did you put down as Christian, putting the Catholic and Protestant together? What was that? What? 95. 95 for you. Any higher than 95? No, no higher. Lower? 80? 60. 60. 40. Uh, The younger you get, the lower it should be. That's what usually happens. Uh, uh, so you can falsely make yourself young, at least. Now, fortunately, you don't collect the data in the States because you have this hang-up about church and state, but in Canada we do. So we have StatsCan data for, for you. Uh, we'll have some more later this year because we do it every 10 years. Now, uh, and you buy it from us. Wonderful arrangement because we have one government ministry that is actually self-financing and it's StatsCan. Both you Americans and the Europeans buy our statistical data because Canadians, uh, you send them a form and they fill it in. They're very dutiful people. Uh, Whereas Americans, I think, say, who on earth is asking for this? I think I'll stick it in the garbage. Uh, So so that's very convenient. It has its advantages for us. So the last data we've got is 1991. And... uh, I don't have it in my head in statistical terms, but I I have it in millions. And roughly multiply by three, and you get it right, because actually between three, nearer to four than three, actually. We're about 27 million, so multiply by four, and you'll be slightly over. In the end, uh, what happened is StatsCan gave a list. They knew that people didn't know what they believed. So it went from atheism to Zoroastrianism. (laughs) And it included uh, Satanism and nothing. Uh, You name it, it was on the list. And I think, I'd, I'd love to, to find out whether this is true, but my guess is that Canadians found out what they were by default. They looked at the list and said, I'm not an atheist. I don't know what Zoroastrianism is. Uh, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Jew. I don't know what an agnostic is. Oh, dear, I must be a Christian. And we are a nation, I don't know about the Americans, but Canadians are a nation of, oh, dear, I must be Christian people. Uh, and then they chose Protestant or Catholic. Uh, they're not exactly excited about it. They're kind of shy. Uh, but in the end, 12, approaching 13 million, put themselves down as Catholic. So uh, that's slight, around 50%. 9.8 million put themselves down as Protestant which is approaching 40%, so you're getting close to your figure. And uh, over 3 million put themselves down as nothing. No other group exceeded 400,000. 
And we have a higher immigration rate in Canada than you do in the US per head of population. It is not true that we're a multicultural society. We're not. As Newhouse says, we are irretrievably Christian until a story with greater expansionary power appears on the horizon. There's no sign of it. We're, we're not rooted Christians. We're thin Christians, but Christians is what we are. So if we're practicing patient-centered medicine, you know what? We should be teaching Christian ethics. And in, in Canada, we should start with the Catholics and then the Protestants. In the States, that's reversed. You should start with the Protestants and move to the Catholics. So you'd start with Paul Ramsey and we'd start with you know, Thomas Aquinas or somebody like that if we were going to do patient-centered ethics. But they're so close to equal. And there's little difference in ethics between Catholics and Protestants except over contraception. And even that's a very recent thing. It wasn't until 1960s that the Protestants departed on the contraceptive issue. It's, it's, it's a blip on the recent uh, horizon. Before that, everybody agreed it was wrong. Uh, it's very, very recent. It's only the advent of an effective contraceptive that has changed that. So that's an argument you should use. It's one of the ways in which you can be articulate in your own community. Are we practicing patient-centered medicine? Therefore, what would it like? If it, what would it look like? If medicine is a moral activity, we better start thinking about this. And of course, we need to think about it more now than we used to because of the nature of disease, etiology. Now, most of you are far too young to have a, a long experience of this, but... Nevertheless, you've been in medicine long enough. Think about family practice, for instance. People coming to a family practitioner's office 40 years ago, what proportion of their complaints could be dealt with on a pathophysiological basis? Fairly adequately. Not perfectly, but fairly adequately. What would you guess? Hmm? Yeah, uh, 70 or 80, I think, yeah. Now, what proportion coming to a family practitioner's office today can be dealt with on that basis? Yeah, that's difficult. And if you go to the inner city, they'll say zero. You see, people are coming with existential problems presenting as medical ones, aren't they? Because we are a society with a thinning religious base. And once you start talking to physicians about this, they respond immediately. They, they recognize. Once the words are expressed, they say, yeah, I knew that, but you just put it into words for me. And Wendell Berry in uh, Life is a Miracle has a lovely uh, metaphor for this, which works perfectly with residents anyway. He says that modern explanations are reductive. When you have explained something in the modern sense, you find leftovers. Especially if you're using a pathophysiological explanation of disease. Modern explanation, he says, is a bucket, not a well. Now... Forty years ago, you put the bucket of pathophysiology down into the well of the patient's experience of disease and you pulled most of it up. You put the bucket of pathophysiology down now and you don't pull up anywhere near all of it. So we moved to the biopsychosocial model to try and pull up a bit more. But until we take spirituality seriously, we won't pull up anywhere near an adequate amount. We're in need of new models. Uh, doctors are being asked to play the role of priest without training for being a priest. Uh, and of course, all the data from Larson and the like showing the relationship between disease and belief is adding fuel to this fire. Uh, pity the good Lord saw fit to remove David Larson from our presence a few weeks ago, just when he seemed to be coming up to full steam. No doubt uh, there's good reason for it, but I have no idea where it is. But as you well know, uh, the, somebody who is in church three Sundays out of four uh, has a lifetime expenditure for health care costs of approximately a quarter to a third of what the average North American has. That's huge. Huge. Uh, so why should we all be paying the same insurance rates? when our actual costs are so different, and we can actually statistically pick out the groups that will have the lower costs. Uh, it's another reason for thinking about Christian medicine again, uh, and thinking about how these things should be worked out. But we can come back to that in a little while. But Hippocrates understood this, that medicine is a moral activity, it needs a moral framework. 
some of the, the, the writings quite early on are quite beautiful. Um, this is the early Roman era. Uh, a man called Libanius, he said, uh, talking to the young physician, he said, you desired to be one of the healers. You, you had the benefit of having good teachers. Now practice your art faithfully. Be reliable. Cultivate love of man. If you are called to your patient, hasten to go. When you enter the sick room, apply all your mental ability to the case at hand. Share in the pain of those who suffer. Rejoice with those who have found relief. Consider yourself a partner in the disease. Muster all you know for the fight to be fought. Consider yourself to be of your contemporaries the brother of those who are your elders, the son of those who are younger. The f sorry, I misread that. Consider yourself to be of your contemporaries the brother of those who are the, your elders, the son of those who are younger. And if... I still haven't read that right. <laughs> it's a strange sentence. Uh, you understand the point, though. And if any one of them neglects his own affairs, remember that this is not permissible for yourself, and it is your duty to be to the sick what the Dioscuri are to the sailor in distress. Uh, it's a, a delightful uh, description of what the practice of medicine should be like. Now, of course, it doesn't describe what medicine is like for most people now. And, uh, already at that stage, there was a division into two groups. People like Galen, who had a high position in society, was had one level of medicine for the rich and another for the poor. You, you know something about that kind of thing. And it, it's not got rid of by having Medicare. As yesterday's National Post, or the day before, showed that the prevalence of various... the outcomes in various parts of Canada are very different. Newfoundland uh, has much worse results with oncology than anywhere else than BC. Uh, they have far fewer oncologists per head of population. But BC, with more money spent on healthcare, nevertheless has the highest suicide rate. It's lotus land, you know. Uh, the Newfies do not commit suicide. They're, they're, they're a different breed. Uh, the only, they're probably the most self-confident people on earth, I think, because they only make jokes at their own expense, uh, really. Uh, and you have to be very sure of yourself to do that. You know, they make anti—they make noofy jokes more than the rest of the country, and uh, they do them better. Uh, it's a one—it's—it's it's a real community. It's a lovely place to go if you never—if you want a really different hospital uh, holiday and hospital. Uh, uh, it's a lovely slip. You go to Newfoundland. Um, Kevin, what's his name? Kevin Spacey has been back twice, I'm told, since he made uh, that film there. And of course, there was no hotel for, for them in uh, wherever they made that film. It was near where we had that conference. But, uh, so they had to stay in bed and breakfast. <laughs> he liked bed and breakfast so much. He's been back with friends twice since. Uh, different environments. But medicine is not as Libanius w would have it be. Uh, we've lost that. that aspect. Now, the next thing is even worse for us in that the Hippocratic Oath says, I will not counsel suicide and I will not prescribe an abortive remedy. Well, it's, it's straightforward, blank statement. Why is that? What's the, what's the issue? Yes? But you not want the killer and the healer and the same person? That's exactly, I think, what he's saying. That's Margaret Mead's point, to pull those two apart. We should have said when abortion was legalized, yes, society has the right to make these decisions. It should, abortion on demand for no medical reason, which is virtually 99.9% .9 of abortion, should be done by an abortionist. And he cannot be a physician. And no abortion should be done by physicians except to save the life of the mother. And if euthanasia is pushed, we should argue if we lose round one, round two would be anybody but a physician. Because we can train somebody to kill somebody else in what, an hour and a half? I mean, you need a bit more practice to become decent at venipuncture, but it's not a difficult technique. Once you can do it, uh, and you've got the line in, put this stuff in, and the patient's dead. Uh, that's all you need. Uh, keep it separate from medicine. But uh, Hippocrates understood that when you start when doctors kill patients, the casualty is trust. And trust is essential to the therapeutic relationship. 
the Hippocratic physicians began as a minority group, uh, but they ended up as dominant because the patients voted with their feet. They're not stupid. They saw that going to the Hippocratic physician, you were more likely to be alive afterwards. That was encouraging. Uh, uh, and everybody else had to sign up to behave in the same way. Remember that these things all began at a time when there was no licensure. Anybody could say they were a doctor. The only way that you could raise standards was by referring to your own conscience and finding other physicians of like conscience. And eventually, of course, uh, the Hippocratic way of doing things became dominant enough that they could you know, say, if you wish to be a Hippocratic physician, you must behave in this way. And licensure grew out of that in due course. But that wasn't the state to begin with. It was quite otherwise. Now, we have made these mistakes in the last hundred years. And we're now in the process of doing it again. And so far, the medical profession has been remarkably silent. Uh, in the late 19th century, people like me, uh, professors, would say things like this in undergraduate lectures. We would say, we are breeding better plants than animals. We should breed better people. With no discussion of all the philosophy involved in the word should or in the word better. Uh, and of course, in the 19th century, we couldn't do anything about it, so it was a throwaway line. But academic throwaway lines that are repeated year after year have a nasty habit of coming back and biting you. And so what happened, of course, is that uh, it got into the medical subconscious, so to speak. It was something that everybody had heard in medical school. Genetics one day will make better people. Then add to that the Nazi idea that some lives were not worthy to be lived. And then the second Nazi idea, a useless mouth. And certain doctors were vulnerable to this. Before we had any decent antipsychotics, in other words, before, until after the Second World War, outside every large city you would find two or three large hospitals dedicated entirely to the care of the mentally and physically disabled. And there were large hospitals. I had a the guy who taught me neurology said if he ever became chronically sick, don't send me to a geriatric hospital, send me to the local loony bin. Because he says there's always a good cook, a good musician. <laughs> They're just mad, but they can still cook and they can still play and they can still paint. Uh, and, this, and he was right, you know. Most of you are too young to remember this, but we used to have wonderful trips to these places. Good food, a concert, and, and the guy who took you around had these patients for years and years, and he would show you everything about the natural history of mental disease because he'd show you early schizophrenia and eventually gets the chronic ones where only he who'd known the patient for years could pull out the odd sentence that actually gave you the whole story. Now, that was the state of affairs. That was the norm in the Western world. But in Germany in the 1930s, they started, euthanasia was legalized. And initially the doctors tried doing it by <coughs> injection. And they found that that was upsetting, as people who've tried it in the recent past, except for Kevorkian, have found it upsetting too. And so uh, they were not keen on it. Now, do you know who built the first gas chamber? What was the profession of the person who built the first gas chamber? Yeah, it was a psychiatrist. They wanted something that was a little more distant. You have to distance yourself from people you're going to kill. You have to depersonalize them in some way. So the first gas chamber was actually built by a psychiatrist. And the first victims, the, the, the ironies in this are almost beyond belief, uh, the first victims included the disabled, but one group of people were actually forbidden the benefits of euthanasia. Do you know who they were? The Jews. Because by definition, they could not be improved. And it's just incredible. Now, there was only one gas chamber when, for a whole bunch of hospitals, and the gas chamber was in one place, and the hospital was in another, and being very bureaucratic, they couldn't use an ambulance to take people to the morgue so to speak. Uh, so they needed transportation. So these physicians actually bought a bus out of their own pocket and on the side they had painted, obviously in German, the charitable transportation company for the sick. You only ever took one journey with that bus company. 
uh, Hitler, when he did start to kill the Jews, had forgotten what the euthanasia program was doing. He initially had his soldiers shoot naked people into trenches. And of course, they deconstructed and took to drink and drugs and were demoralized. So he had to stop that or he'd ruin his army. Then he heard about the psychiatrists and neurologists. So the whole program was handed over to docs. In fact, if you were unfortunate enough to arrive at Auschwitz, the person who made the decision when you got to the platform, you went into one of two streams. One stream went straight to the gas chamber, the other to the work camp. In every case, the decision was made by a doctor on the basis of an eyeball examination. Enough body mass to work, not enough body mass to work. That was all. Now, when this was all over, uh, the Second World War was finally won, and we discovered what had been going on. Of course, the medical profession was mortified because doctors were overrepresented in the Nazi party. We have authoritarian tendencies. We, we, we're not attracted by communism. We are by fascism, so to speak. Uh, and uh, an American doctor, Jay Lifton, actually went over to interview the doctors who had been doing this. And what do you think they said about what they were doing? They said something you hear now. What we did was legal. We only acted honorably. We obeyed orders. You hear that about abortion, don't you? But they were right. And if legality is the reason for your behavior, then you ought to say, if that is the reason that is adequate for me to accept abortion, then we ought not to have executed anyone at Nuremberg for medical crimes because it was all legal. It's not legality. The law can be immoral. And, of course, the argument about Nuremberg is there's a higher law. Yes, there is. We'd better talk about what that is, and that's what should control medicine. You ought to have a copy of Jay Lifton's The Nazi Doctors on your shelf. It'll take you, if you're like me, it'll take you many years to read it because I can't read more than a few pages at a time. Every time uh, uh, I get a little too tired, uh, and feel like I've had enough of this peripatetic life. Uh, I read a, a few more pages and then say, how many people out there know that so far? And I go on again. And we'll continue to do so until more people can do it and it's no longer necessary. And I get no further invitations. I thought that would happen in about 18 months, but it hasn't happened so far. But we've been asleep at the wheel, basically. And the final one, of course that uh, Hippocrates understood was, he says of the physician, he makes him promise that I will guard my life in purity and holiness. What's he talking about? I think what he's talking about is moral integrity. And this comes up particularly in family practice, especially with residents. Uh, every year, pretty well, I'll get a resident who emails me or calls me and says, I'm opposed to abortion, and I don't have to do abortion, but I am constantly told by my mentor that I must refer anybody who wishes an abortion. And I'm uncomfortable about that, but I don't know what to do, what I do. And I say, well, in these postmodern times, there's an easy way out. Everybody has the right to tell their story now. So what you say to your teacher, mentor, director is, before we get to my referral practice, I think there's a preliminary question that I need to ask you. May I do that? They're bound to say yes. And this is the question. Do you wish you and your family to be cared for by a doctor with or without moral integrity? Now, unless you can raise your hand and say, I want my doctor to be without moral integrity, you obviously lose all right to destroy the moral integrity of someone else, don't you? Because it may not be an important issue to them, but if it is to you, you are diminished by being made an immoral person in your own eyes for all future interactions with patients. No one has the right to do that. And of course, the current state of affairs in North America is that we're in need of affirmative action for democratic reasons. How many pro-life medical schools are there in North America? Loma Linda isn't. I used to say that. I was there last week. They're not pro-life. They're confused. There isn't one that understands why it's pro-life or what it means. Now, given that over 50% of Americans, I think it was 53% on the last poll, are pro-life, and if medicine is a moral activity, 
approximately half the medical schools should be unashamedly pro-life and half the hospitals and half the family practices and everything else. That's justice, isn't it? Uh, and let them fight it out again. You see, we are now a culture without a moral consensus. And the initial response to that was moral neutrality, which is incoherent, uh, and secularism, which is parasitic on religious values, religious ideas of truth. Uh, that won't work. It's falling apart at the seams. McIntyre made the point a long while ago that, that the issue for the modern world is at what point do we withdraw from shoring up the institutions of the state into the formation of our own institutions. Now, we're already doing that with education, aren't we? How many of you have got home or Christian school kids? Uh, so, yeah, you know, so it's about 30% of you already, you see, and it's going to be more. We just sneaked through with our family. There was a school in town that still maintained reasonable standards, uh, as long as parents were alive and kicking and willing to go and bat at school. You know, I forced one teacher out of teaching for all the time my kids were in the school. They, she had to look after the library. As soon as my kids were out, they brought her back again. She should never have been teaching. She was incoherent and amoral, not immoral. Now, so that's a growing group, and they are performing well. We've just had a survey in Ontario, and the median value for the homeschool kids turns out to be the 75th percentile on the state system. And it's not a curve like this, it's a flat curve, you know. It's a huge difference. You don't need statistics to work out that that's a significant difference. Choose your own p-value. Uh, now, medicine, it seems to me, will be the next. That we are moving towards a situation where we will become too incoherent. There are tensions already, aren't there? Especially in obstetrics gynecology, tensions between those who will and those who will not do abortion. Now, with the Human Genome Project's results coming down, pediatrics is incredibly vulnerable now. Because if we do, and I think we, we, we logically will pers persist down this road, if we accept abortion on demand for whatever reason, up to and including partial birth abortion, on what grounds can you possibly object to infanticide for a child who will be developmentally two years old for the next 25 years? Can any of you come up with a rational reason for denying infanticide to that family? Apparently not. Peter Singer says you can't. He's, he's coherent. He's right. Abortion on demand, up to partial birth abortion, must allow infanticide. It will come because, as Jay Bachevsky puts it, we are logical but slowly. Uh, and we need to, to recognize that reality. Uh, and that's not the only area. All areas are are showing this phenomenon. Let me just read you one paragraph from Jay Bachevsky's paper in First Things. Uh, it's now, uh, amazingly, five years ago. But this, uh, how many of you know the pa paper, The Revenge of Conscience? A couple of you, yes, obviously from Austin you would. Let me just read the first paragraph. And how many are not First Things readers? Oh, well, you will be after this. Yeah. Firstthings.com, you can go and get it yourself. Just put, 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 put the revenge of conscience into the uh, browser, and this is what you'll get. Things are getting worse quickly now. The list of what we are required to approve is growing ever longer. Consider the domain of sexual practice. First, we were to approve sex before marriage, then without marriage, now against marriage. First with one, then with a series, now with a crowd. First with the other sex, then with the same. First between adults, then between children, then between adults and children. The last item has not been added yet, but will be soon. You can tell from the change in language, just as you can tell the approach of winter from the change in the color of the leaves. As any sin passes through its stages, from temptation to toleration to approval, its name is first euphemized, then avoided, then forgotten. A colleague tells me that some of his fellow legal scholars call child molestation intergenerational intimacy. That's euphemism. A good-hearted editor, IVP I'm told, <coughs> tried to talk me out of using the word sodomy. That's avoidance. My students don't know the word fornication at all. That's forgetfulness. You can keep that up for 12 pages. Uh, it's a brilliant discussion of how conscience works. Uh, well worth the... Uh, first thing, subscription just for that paper in a single year. But 
that's where we're headed. We're, we're headed down pathways that, that are diverging. You only have to listen to the discussions about embryonic stem cell research. If you believe that abortion on demand is okay, then you're going to move to a utilitarian approach to uh, the unborn. We've already got the first inklings, you know, children being conceived in vitro so that they can provide spare parts for a living child. That's already happened. Uh, now, where does this all end? I don't know, but clearly we're going to part company on more, more and more issues as time goes on. Uh, and if medicine is a moral activity, the crunch is going to come. In Canada, we, we've started the Hippocratic Registry of Physicians. Uh, and the reason for doing it is to get people to sign up who would understand that these principles that served us so well for so long need to be affirmed and maintained. And the only reason for having that registry is so that uh, we take 10 or 20 bucks <coughs> off you and do nothing for you. And hopefully, we'll never have to do anything for you. That's the way it would work. Uh, hopefully, it's a sleeping giant, basically, a list that when it's big enough, we simply let it be known that this list exists. And that if the government says, and there are people in University of British Columbia, for instance, already arguing that no medical student should be allowed into medical school who, will not say, who says they will not do abortions. That's the feminists in UBC. Now, if they tried to pass a law to that effect, we would simply say, unless that law is rescinded, on Monday, 50% of your workforce will not be at work. Not for more money, but for conditions of service. Uh, that's a political disaster that, that no government could handle. And it probably is, if you need an hour or so to explain this to get people on board, but uh, if you get 50% signed up, they would have to bend. And what you say is, look, in, an, in our system anyway, you're giving our money back to us. Now you'd better give it out on the basis of what we believe. You don't have to run the health systems have two parallel systems, come up with a just funding formula, and let's go at it and see who wins. We won last time, we'll win again. And the reason we chose the Hippocratic Registry is that it takes away reflex anti-Christian uh, prejudices, and of course it would allow good Jews and Muslims, and as well as Protestants and Catholics, to combine, who would agree that this is the way that medicine ought to be practiced. So these are the issues that come out of this period that, that I wanted to draw your attention to. Uh, those of you who are exhausted after the day can uh, quietly disappear to your uh, mind-numbing uh, moving wallpaper or uh, uh, to your bed or whatever. And those of you who wish to ask questions, I don't know whether you want to go and get another drink first, so that would allow those who uh, want to go to slide out uh, with grace and uh, unnoticed. Uh, or whether you want to go ahead with questions straight away. Yeah, what, what, which one are you doing tomorrow? The Italian one? Yeah, because Italian's pretty... Everybody accepts that. Anyway, so. It's good food, too. The cost will be uh, roughly, it depends on whether you want a glass of wine, but 20 to 20 dollars. The main yeah. Uh, Canadian. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it's good food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, in the market. And they have an upstairs room where we can all eat together. Yes, yes. Yeah, of course you can bring families. If we're all together, it'd be great. Uh, children and children. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's no compunction to join. I mean, if you want to go with your family, do something else, or if you want something cheaper, or you want to spend the time in prayer and fasting, who would we be to stand in the way, you know? Uh, now, while, while that's going round, I did also bring in... Um, a set of tapes there in piles, basically, that you can, uh, of the same title, except the ones on the top, which are loose. The, the green one is the one I told you about, contraception, why not? That's only a buck. Uh, the rest, I'm told, I should sell for, for uh, $5 US, they're Canadian, uh, uh, tapes.
Uh, just put the money down here and take whichever one you want, you know. Uh, when, if they all go, I'll simply uh, provide some. I think the, the other piles are correct. Now, they're not a, there's mine. Um, there's also Robert Spitzer's. And if you've not heard Spitzer, uh, including one you can't get in the States called How to, to Talk to an Age of Scientism, which is brilliant. Uh, and I, ha I don't have too many copies of that. So, uh, yes, yes. Uh, there's another one on rights and freedoms. Um, there's also some by Terry's wife, a couple on uh, the sanctity of life. And she's a very good speaker. So uh, if you wanted to find another speaker and you could have a sample, that's there. <laughs>